Folks, if you're liking what you're getting from 30MPC, the number one way you can support us is by subscribing to our newsletter. Every week, you only get two emails. On Monday, you get a content roll-up of everything that dropped last week. And on Fridays, I pick one topic and I personally write a deep dive on things like how to cold call, how to run a discovery call, or even how to hire an AE. So if you're liking what you're getting here, take two seconds, go to the show notes. You'll see a button to subscribe to our newsletter, or you can go to 30mpc.com backslash newsletter and do it there. We'll catch you soon. Cheers. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this leadership episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name is Armand Frog, and I'm here with my co-host, Mark Casaglow. And today, we have Holly Proctor, the CRO at Incredible Health, formerly a senior leader at Clary as well. Mark, why should people listen? Well, listen, Armand, have you ever wanted to know how the head of sales at two tech titans battled each other in the trenches to both create multi-billion dollar valuation companies? I want to see it now. I think people want to see that, right? I think you get a little insight into some of the stuff Holly was doing that's a little different than what I was doing at an outreach and how they come together. I think to form what we should have been like Wonder Twins, Wonder Twin Power activated together. I think our two ideas together are unbelievable and they're from two totally different perspectives. Holy smokes. And today, folks, if you've ever missed a goal, God knows, I wish I heard this advice earlier. Let's ride. And a three, two, one, let's go. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. If you get an email and the action required on that email is going to take you less than two minutes to do, do it on the spot. It's not worth adding it to your to-do list, having to look at the item, remember what you need to do. That's going to take you more than two minutes anyway. So do it on the spot, get it off your plate. Now we documented our best templates and tips to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang. And you can get that documentation for free at the link in the show notes. Otter AI's Otter Pilot for Sales gives you the freedom to sell on your discovery calls by taking notes for you. One of the best ways to deepen your discovery is to ask your prospect about the impetus behind their goals. So when a prospect tells me they want to advertise on more sales podcasts, I'll say, well, it's not every day that you wake up and decide you want to sponsor a podcast. What's causing you to even explore this in the first place? Now, we put together the ultimate discovery checklist with our friends at Otter AI, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes. Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Super Cadence by Influ2, which helps cut through the noise of oversaturated prospecting channels. If you want to get your prospect's attention, you got to do stuff a robot would never do. One of my favorite plays is getting warm introductions to the accounts that I'm targeting via salespeople who work at that account. Salespeople help salespeople. Another approach could be using Super Cadence to run SDR ads to put a face to the name. Now, we worked with Influ2 to put together a special toolkit on ways to humanize your outreach, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes. Today's tactic to triple your connect rate is brought to you by RocketReach, who provides data that lets you reach out to the right person at the right account at the right time. Every time you're reaching out to an account, pull down the contacts again. Yes, I know it sucks, but the average tech tenure is two years, which means 50% of the workforce turns over every year. So look up the account, pull anyone who was hired, and scratch anyone who was left. And one way you can pull verified and accurate data is with Rocket Reach. So if you like this, check out their toolkit on eight ways to triple your cold call connects in the show notes. All righty, Holly, welcome to the show. We start every show with your top three actionable takeaways. Let's get your three. Awesome. All right, let's, let's dig in. 
My first actionable takeaway is uh, around sequence of events. And if you've never heard of sequence of events before, sometimes called SOE, uh, it's the way I manage pipeline reviews. So I pull the entire team together at the end of both every month and at the end of every quarter, and we run through a sequence of events, which is the things that must happen inside of your deal to get the deal done. And so the premise is that I'm actually asking the team to transform from being a salesperson in that moment to being a project manager. I want them to not think about the value they're trying to drive inside of a deal, but to think about what are the steps that need to happen and by when in order for the deal to close by X date. And so you you literally map it out. Legal will take two weeks and then we need to, we need to do another two stakeholder demos with this person and that person. So that's going to take four weeks. Now we have to do the IT review, which we can't start until legal finishes. And that's a four week timeline. And so therefore, you know, this is our close date. You back in to the time to close through your sequence of events. You map out exactly what's required and the timeline for each. And this keeps your deals on track. Amazing. What's number two? All right, number two, I call this one prospecting in a box. And one of the sales leaders jobs, of course, is to create leverage for their team and identify something that's going well inside of, let's say, one person on the team and then extrapolate it so the whole team can take advantage of that and the whole org is taking advantage of that. So let's take that one step further. You know, one thing that's very common inside of a sales org and certainly in sales leadership is for them to set some type of activity targets, 100 touches a week, 200 touches a week, you know, whatever. And so that's supposed to get at volume. And I've had a lot more success focusing on seller-driven campaigns that we package up like prospecting in a box instead of just focusing on volume. And so let me give an example of a couple prospecting in a box campaigns that I've run. One is called Wake the Dead. And this is a campaign where you go back to previously closed lost opportunities. And what I'd give to the seller is a targeted list of prior closed loss opportunities. I'd write out the messaging that I want them to go to those closed loss opportunities with and exactly how to re-engage. What's the format? Maybe you put it in a sequence, right? What is all the components of the campaign they need? The list, the messaging, the resourcing, and I deliver to them. And so I want them to go and, again, and execute against that campaign. And then it's just as easy as one, two, three, instead of them having to figure out, I know I need a hundred touches, but I don't know what I'm going to say or who I'm going to say them to. This is one of the best ways to rally the team around prospecting initiatives. Let's go. What's number three? Okay. My third tip is I call it confidence level goal setting. And as a CRO, one of the hardest parts of the job is that you're working with the founder and the CEO, uh, oftentimes founder CEO uh, at startups and uh, CFOs to set the target for the sales team. And one of the things that's tough is that there's some inherent conflict of interest in that relationship. Naturally, you and the founder CEO and the CFO want the company to grow as quickly as possible, but you also want to ensure that your sellers are set up for success. And if you don't set a target that they've got a shot at hitting, you're going to lose that sales team. And so one question I ask founders and CFOs in this process is, what level of confidence do you want to have in our ability to hit? And if they say something like, I don't want to go to the next board meeting again with another miss, I'm going to get eaten alive, then that's very helpful framing for you and ensuring that the target is in line with that psychology. And so in that case, you might want to set a goal that you have 80 or 90% confidence in actually hitting. This is a super great exercise in expectation setting with your founders and with your CFOs. If they say, I want to stretch this team as much as humanly possible, we need it. And so let's set a really, really lofty goal. And then you're saying, okay, then it's a 10% confidence. I have 10% confidence or maybe even less, 5% confidence that we're going to hit this target. And therefore, there shouldn't be any surprise to your founder, your CFO, uh, your CEO that you miss the target. It's 90% likely that you are going to miss. 
And then of course, like the downstream implications of that is you might have some morale issues. You might have, you know, you might lose some top talent, um, but you've already framed it in a way that set the appropriate expectations. Holly, so Holly, I love that. I want to go back to your first point, which is project manager versus what I would contrast that with is sales professional. I think those are two different skill sets. Like, why are you distinguishing for reps between project manager versus like being this kick-ass seller? Yeah, totally. I think the mindset shift in naming myself as a project manager, nobody who is an expert seller wants to be a project manager. And yet uh, there's a time and a place for when that is the most effective thing you can be inside of a cycle. And so let's assume, uh, just to be clear, I'm not suggesting you start as a project manager, right? I'm suggesting you end as one. And Mm. so when you kick off a sales process, your goal is to drive value in a conversation with your respective buyer, right? And so drive value, drive value, objection handle, and eventually you get to a place where you uh, you have agreed to complete a deal, right? They said, yep, we're in. And now you're in full execu- execution mode. And so you are sunsetting the driving value. Assume that box is checked, right? They're ready to buy. And now the move is, how do I just get the deal done? It's not, how do I sell them? They're sold. It's, how do you get the deal done? And this is particularly true in large enterprise deals where you might have agreed to do a deal six months before you get an agreement signed. In that scenario, you know, you might be navigating a complex IT process for four months. You're not a salesperson, right? You're project managing a crazy, you know, a a complex IT process or an annoyingly long legal process. In that case, it's who's responsible for the deliverable, keeping them on track for delivering, ensuring that there's collaboration between your buyer and the other parties inside an org they're navigating with. And so it's keeping the ducks in a row. It's not being an expert value driver. So listen, Doing the project management, you lay it out, you do your timeline, legal take this, red lines take this, this takes this. Knowing the timeline and influencing it are two totally different things. How are you getting reps to be like, hey, that's too slow. I need this deal this quarter. Influence that timeline. Don't just accept it. How are you helping reps do that? So first, even just knowing it is, and and this is why I love the sequence of events component is so critical because like you'll get reps that just put, you know, a closed date with no thought into the timeline that gets to that closed date. Right. And so like, if you actually force them to do the math on, you have, you know, you have three more steps in the process and each of those steps takes X period of time. Right. And so if you just do the math, like you're now at this closed date, why is it sitting in quarter when there's no shot? right? You would have had to truncate your legal process by 75% in order to win that in this quarter. What signal are you getting from the customer that suggests they're ready to move that fast, right? And so just knowing it is super helpful. But to actually answer your question around like, how, how do you inspire some movement and progress against that? One of the best ways is to figure out which parts of the process you can run in parallel, right? And so do we have to wait for IT to be complete before we kick off legal? Here's the risk to go live if we do that right? If we're 99% sure we're going to be able to get legal through, let's not wait to kickstart these other processes or parts of the process so that we can make progress against many things at once. Yeah. The whole concept of in parallel versus sequential, I find kind of blows a lot of reps mind. Like let's work on multiple things at once rather than one thing at a time, right? Yes. Mark, I also think you have a similar way of when you get this first sequence of events, you have a series of questions that you use to unpack or unblock the next two or three steps as well. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So I would say sequence events. And since this is a leadership podcast, we need to do something that I think leaders are, you know, I mean, we can talk about how reps deal with it, right? But as a leader, if your sequence of events isn't 
buried and like rooted in your sales process, then your sales process is wrong, right? Like, because you want that like institutional, this is how you do it. This is how we coach to it. This is the questions you're going to get. This is how to think about progressing a deal forward at our company. So you burn that pathway in their brain that gets them to think about this is how to do it versus always trying to figure it out on the go. You know, something you just triggered for me, and I think it's really important, you know, from the leadership component is which of these things do we need to navigate with a customer versus we can influence by an action we take. And so I'll give legal as an example. In my current company at Incredible Health, there was a scenario in which legal was elongating. And so the time we were spending there was getting longer and obviously elongating sales process. And so one of the things that we did is truncate our agreement down to two pages. So the conversation with our lawyers were, we want a, a services agreement we can give to the customer, but you have a maximum of two pages. So figure out how to write the language to accomplish what we're looking for in two pages or less, right? And we're, you know, we're you know, doing very large deals in two pages or less. And that was very intentional. Could that be nine pages? Of course it could. But the, the direction is we're okay to take on a little bit of risk in order to optimize for speed. Man, I love that. I wish I had that much clout with my legal department. <laughs> <laughs> you will, Mark. You will. <laughs> Holly, I'm curious from your standpoint. You've got all of these deals that are coming across the line. You've also got different sizes of deals at different stages. And I could imagine it being really, really hard to stay on top of the sequence of events for 20, 30, 40 different deals, right? So when we talk about simplifying these steps, let's say I don't have a sequence of events today. If I'm stepping in as the sales leader in the organization, what is the right level of altitude or simplicity for those sequence of events? Is it like mutual action plan level of detail that you're building for your team? Is it high level phases and like Salesforce stages or is it something in between? Yeah, great question. So short answer is it's something in between. I'm not going to go assess the mutual action plan of 50 deals a quarter. And, you know, assuming you've got leaders also, you know, sales managers that are in place that are navigating most deal volume with the sales reps themselves. The system that I use to do this today is Clary. So inside of Clary, we're managing our pipeline progression. And there is a next steps field where we're documenting all of our sequence of events. So they're putting a date on when each of the sequences needs to be complete or when they're projecting its completion. And that's also very much in line with the close date. And so that means what I can't do, let's say we've got 50 deals in the pipeline. I can't have 50 conversations regularly about those, but I can look if I want at 50, you know, sort of short codes on SOE inside of Clary. And that's very easy to navigate. And so that's the mechanism for at the serial level, you know, SOE and a manager is probably using that plus in-depth conversations in a one-on-one. So this is important, I think, for leadership. So different altitudes of leadership dictate different levels of responsibility and expectation. So as a CRO, tell me how you're using this next step field, but then juxtapose it with how you expect your frontline managers to be using it. Yes. So right now I'm pretty much only digging into sequence of events in the last likely two, three weeks of a deal. Right. And so I'm looking at it mostly to signal how much risk do I have in the forecast, right? Is the SOE that we, that we were planning on that was aligned to this quarter end, is it on track or is there risk associated with this deal? And so that's the real mechanism for me is I'm trying to signal risk inside the quarter. Are we actually on track with, you know, what I'm planning for? The manager of course has to start much earlier in the process to, to provide 
promote the pipeline through the sales process. So I'm usually looking at late stage deals and they're looking at early stage deals, right? And so if they're mm -hmm. looking at sequence of events in the first part of the sequence, you know, there's generally a demo, right? That's generally your first part to some kind of, you know, software sale is a demo. And then there's generally other stakeholders that need to get involved for introductory conversations. And so they're managing the next steps on how do they get moved from S1 to S2 to S3. And I'm assuming the leaders are doing that. And obviously I can go inspect that. But the real place that I'm digging in is once we get to later stage and there's a real impact on the forecast. So I know you've done this where you're at now. I'm assuming that you did it at Clary. Clary's kind yes. of a household name in SaaS. Like if I'm a leader and I'm like, I'm digging on this SOE thing, like give me like a couple, one or two steps that I need to take and maybe a pitfall that I need to be aware of if I want to go implement this in the next couple of weeks or next quarter. Sure. The first thing that you need to do, and this was sort of Armand to your question, it's not sales stages, right? It's not like discovery, right? That is that is not a sequence of events. It is something that you're going to navigate with your customer. So what are the steps the customer is going to go through to get a deal done? So that's the thing that you're defining in your sales process. And one of the pitfalls I would say, Mark, is that you need to ensure that it's clear which ones are mandatory and which ones are optional. So I'll give you mm -hmm. an example. Let's say references. References, you'd love to skip. That's a step in the process that I would be ideal to not deliver against, right? But sometimes you have to use it. And so, especially for early stage sales reps, you know, I've put references in and then they've proactively gone to the customer to see if they want references. Well, that's not what I'm trying to drive, right? It is like, yeah. if we don't, references isn't a mandatory step to get, a, you know, to part of our SOE. It's, it's there if you need to use it. And if you think you're going to need to use it, you have to factor it into your timeline, right? References might add two or three weeks to your process, right? And so if you think it's going to be required, you have to factor it into your close date. But let's make sure that it, everyone knows that's only if you have to, it's not a requirement. Right. Awesome. So my next question then is, if that's what's coming up to you, what's going up to the CEO slash CFO level in terms of the altitude that you're reporting to them? So a uh, handful of things in the CFO, CEO level. Ultimately, I'm delivering against the top line forecast. What do I think we're going to drive? What in bookings do I think we'll drive this quarter? The deal by deal, sub in, sub out is less relevant for that altitude. If the actual forecast doesn't change, they don't care if it's deal X instead of deal Y. Right. And so, you know, not doing any granular deal level views unless we're at the enterprise and there's something uniquely particular about that logo that they want visibility into. And so that's basically, you know, the major themes. The other, you know, is is around slippage. And so as we plan for the next quarter, there is some interest in understanding how much of the pipeline from this quarter is going to move into next quarter. And, you know, should we count on you know some early wins in the next quarter, given that slippage? I always say, if you don't want to see how the sausage is made, don't come to the sausage making meeting. because <laughs> totally. So Holly, one thing that you talked about in your second tip is very different than what I think. Hmm. And that is, I believe prospecting is a micromanaged behavior. I believe that you have to 100% prescribe activities and make sure there's 100% adherence to those activities or prospecting just won't happen. AEs just won't do it. You suggested maybe instead that you give somebody a project and because there's a little more direction and they don't have to do quite as much thinking they get into it. Help me understand like why I should get off my old school, old man, get off my lawn approach to prospecting and onto your, your way of doing it. 
<laughs> okay, so I'll start maybe you know with a bigger picture, which is we all probably got into sales leadership because we were sales reps. And I loved being a sales rep. And so if I wasn't in this role, and maybe still someday, I'll retire and just go be a rep. Right? I love selling at the core of what I do. And so in that scenario, I, th I think a lot about how I like to be managed. And I'm just intrinsically very motivated to win. So nobody needs to tell me to care about winning more or to prospect. I know intuitively that if I don't prospect, I'm not going to win. Right. And so I didn't like to be managed in the like, do your four activities today or whatever. I just it like made my skin crawl. And so part of me was I'm you have to there's some big assumptions in that model. The first is that you've hired really motivated people. Right. And so like that in itself is a massive assumption. Right. The other is that, you know, you're probably not crazy early stage. Right. That like you're in you know a person that is some muscle memory on a recipe that works for them. And then the last major thing is that. Not that prospecting isn't critical, because of course it is, but ultimately everyone is paid against their performance around winning and closing a deal, not on how many meetings they generate. And so if you've figured out a way to work smarter and more efficiently and produce the same or a better outcome, who am I to say that I need 400 activities, right? And so I'm really investing a lot in the caliber and quality of the team I have and relying on a lot of trust. So that's sort of thought number one. Thought number two is, have you guys heard of the sort of concept around batching activities? Sure. I'm a huge believer in this. You know, thinking about efficiency inside of your workflow, I try to squeeze all my meetings together. And if I have any open time, it is so much better to have an hour of open time than two 30-minute blocks, right? You, you make so much more progress in that scenario. And so one of the things I appreciate about this model of prospecting in a box is you can get really good at batching activities, right? If you block off two hours and I've already delivered for you the target list and the messaging and the sequences that you need to deploy, you can probably get that entire exercise done in your two hour batch. Whereas if you have to do all of it from scratch, like you're probably not going to block off the whole day, right? And so then maybe on Monday, you're doing the targeting. On Tuesday, you're coming up with the whatever. And I just in general think that you can scale so much better if you do the heavy lifting and then have the reps do the execution. Are cold emails dead, Holly? I don't think they're dead, but the uh, the hit rate is certainly low. And so creativity is is critical. I think every sales leader right now is dealing with this because top of funnel stinks for everybody that I talk to. Are you guys doing anything creative, interesting that you can put into a prospecting in a box format that you could, that somebody could hand to some of their reps in the next week if they try yeah, for sure. Okay. So let's say maybe cold outreach isn't dead, but we need more, we need more ideas. Like how else do we bring creativity? So I'll tell you one we just did last week. If you're in a place where you have a bunch of happy customers and you have a bunch of people, let's call them advisors, investors, friendlies that want to see the company succeed, my guess is you're not doing enough to leverage those evangelists. And so how do you turn a cold email into some type of warm outreach? And so a couple things. I think asking for referrals from your customers is something most orgs don't do enough of, right? You're like, in this case, if I've sold to Armand and we have a, a good relationship, he's successful on my product. Why am I not calling him in three months and asking for him to introduce me to three of his peers that have his job at company X, Y, and Z, right? And so like, that's a huge one, asking for referrals. The other one is it, where can you leverage executive friendlies? And have you really invested the legwork to really map out where those are? So I just asked our founder CEO, who are the top you know, 15, 20 people that would do anything for you? Her name is Aman Abu Zaid. Aman, who would do anything for you? She probably got a long list, but give me your top 20. And so then I go into you know, her LinkedIn network and map out who all of those people are connected to. 
And so now I have this like crazy long list of like, if they would do anything for you, I need them to introduce us to these 15 people. Right. And so here's the list. And so I'm really managing that step by step. And so she's doing no heavy lifting. Right. She meaning our CEO. And really neither is the person she's asking for referral. So we are identifying the connection. We're drafting the ghost note, both the ghost note for her to ask for an introduction and the ghost note that the introduction sends. Right. So we're doing all of the heavy lifting around that. And the result is a bunch of super senior meetings. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's a lot of heavy lifting, but a really healthy pipe creation exercise. So for all the sales leaders listening right now, this is an awesome way for you to help your reps out. So I'm a big fan of the, I hate to be Switzerland on this one, but I actually do both. I do ask for activity targets just because there's a certain expectation of how many accounts you should be working a week, how many meetings you should be booking a week. But the way that we oftentimes hit those targets is through prospecting in a box. We would call it the 50-50 plan, which is 50% of your prospecting, you should just figure it out on your own. 50% of your prospecting, we're going to be doing as a team in these marching campaigns together and everything else is gravy on top. And essentially what you've created, Holly, is if you combine the two tactics that you just gave, you've given your reps this campaign, you've given them a list of accounts and you've gotten essentially economies of scale across all of your reps so that they're all hitting the market in the same way. But then what you can do as a CRO or as a VP or as a director or as even as a manager is you can say, this is the stack rank of how we're going to reach out to these folks. So if this is a closed loss campaign, for example, stack rank number one is let's find the most high person or the highest altitude person in our organization who met with that customer in the first place, because you might not have been the person who met with that customer in the first place. And step one is let's have them send the note. And you, as the person who's leading the team, have the ability to call in those favors across the organization and get reps to work cross-territory instead of just hoping that reps help each other out. Step two might be exec to exec note for key accounts. And again, you can call in those favors because you have a targeted cap campaign. And then step three might be the outbound campaign. And that's the ultimate sequence that you've already drafted for your team. And it's so much easier to slice and dice accounts and not just go in pure cold when you do these things across the group. Totally agree. You've delivered that initial forecast to your CEO, right? You know where your deals are. You know where your risk stands for the quarter. How do you manage the situation when, especially today, inevitably, unless you're a superhuman, everyone has had a forecast drop or everyone has had their number slip below target. How do you manage that interaction with your CEO, your CFO, without it blowing up in your face? So it's such a good topic. In general, I think most people are surprised to learn that CRO tenure on average is 18 months, which is just brutal when you think about how long it takes to ramp and such. And generally what happens and the number one source for you know that tenure is conflict between CEO and founder and CRO. And mostly it stems from a dip in productivity, right? And the sales team misses and obviously someone needs to be held accountable for that miss. And so the first action for a novice or first time founder is for them to terminate the CRO. Okay, CRO's not cutting it. We're going to move on to the next. Someone else won't miss, right? And there's so many flaws in this model. So the first flaw is you set the goals. It's not like the software gods like come down and give you the target. It, it, you know, you are a huge part of establishing what the right number is. And establishing the right number is challenging. Ultimately, you're trying to get to a place where you're pushing the team hard enough, right, that they're stretching, but not so hard that it's impossible to win. And so, you know, if you are in a place where you're, you're hitting the target, 
target every single quarter, I would argue that you've been really poor at setting targets. You haven't pushed the team hard enough, right? And so it, occasionally you should miss is sort of part of it. Otherwise, you're not pushing hard enough. So that's sort of number one. And number two, I think it is so critical to have a conversation with your CEO founder before you miss a target. And I don't mean like you, you know, it's the beginning of Q1 and you think you're going to miss. And so you have the conversation. I mean, in a moment where you're crushing it. Right. Yeah. So let's say you're having the best quarter ever. It's a perfect time to have a conversation about a future miss. Right. Because at that moment, it's hypothetical. And the conversation should probably sound something like this. There are several reasons why my peers, other CROs and their CEOs have had shortened tenure less than 18 months. The first is a way that they navigate conflict. And so based on the way you and I are, are navigating conflict, you know, I'm feeling in a good position around our, you know, our ability to win there. And it's probably worth noting that navigating conflict at that level is tough because you are getting the hardest things, right? Some The easy stuff is solved three levels below you, right? If conflict comes to you or there's something really tough, it's the hardest problems in the business. And so conflict is inevitable, right? We're going to work on difficult stuff together. So let's make sure when we do work on difficult stuff, right, that the way we approach it is aligned. We're going to be data-driven. You know, we're going to assess all points of views, right? Like however you want to navigate, that's a good time to discuss. So that's sort of number one is navigating conflict. Number two is there will be a point in time in which my team misses our target. I guarantee it, right? It is going to happen. It is absolutely inevitable. When that time comes, if it's you against me, I will be out at 18 months. If it's you and I against the problem, we will be just fine. And what I mean by that is, okay, it looks like we are trending below our respective target in Q4. And so what we should go do is assess why. Has the market shifted? Is there new entrants or new competitors we're up against? Is there something off in the product that we're delivering? What's happened on our top of funnel? Is the sales team you know, converting at, this, at a similar rate or are they dropped? Right? What is the full and complete problem? And let's go address the full and complete problem. What I can guarantee you is that we weren't an amazing sales team yesterday and a crappy sales team today. And so it is more than just one input. And so if it's you and I against the problem, we're going to be in a great place. And the reason why I think it's so critical to go do that in advance of the miss is because you'll sound defensive no matter what, right? And so you don't want to be defensive. You just want to be thorough. And it's so much easier to do that uh, well in advance. Now you're on the same page. Now you're ready to go attack the problem together. So to make this really real, this happened to me personally, um, and I have an amazing relationship with our CEO over at PAVE, but this happened to me when the market turned. And my first thing was basically like, we didn't forget how to sell. I mean, we, we were selling last quarter. We didn't just forget how to sell, right? We've been practicing this for a long time. But what was tricky is we were so hot. We were so hot every single quarter and clearly something changed. And there were all of these questions around where are deals dropping off in your sales cycles? Are we not getting the power anymore? Is it a product issue? If so, what are the feature gaps that matter in this market today? Is it truly a market issue? How do we know how many deals are lost due to the market dynamics versus the product issues, right? And there's this constant battle between, is this an internal product issue? Is it an internal sales issue? Or is it an external market issue? So I'm curious, Without going on a 17-year data excavation, how do you get to a simple, concise 80-20 answer so you can focus on solving the problem and doing the job again? My first response to that is you need a very strong command of leading indicator metrics. Right? What are the things that will signal to you that there's going to be problems in the future? 
right? So most people are looking, of course, at, at pipeline data, right? Coverage ratios and other things, volume, source information, right? Where are we generating pipeline? Another leading indicator is, pan, is SAM penetration. How far through your target market are you, right? And how much is left to go after? And so when you think about like identifying for your business, all the leading indicator metrics, you need to be able to signal to the founder CEO well in advance that you're likely going to face a challenge, right? And so my guess is based on our limited production of pipeline in Q1, Q3 is going to be tough. Right. And so that conversation, you know, you're signaling with a, a ton of advanced warning. That means one, you're going to cr- go try to do some stuff to see what you can improve. But then now you're planning for it. So now the business can prepare for what is likely to be a down quarter. So I think that's critical. So, Holly, you're in this conversation. You're trying to explain this complex system of revenue. Your CEO, for some reason, has narrowed it down to something as simple as your you as a sales leader are not doing the job anymore when it could be economic headwinds. It could be product downtime. It could be, you know, no value creation. It could be, a, you know, a million other things, marketing sending over bad leads. It had nothing to do with you. How have you broadened their perspective to understand that, Hey, this is a complex system partner with me in solving the problem instead of making me the problem. Like how's that conversation gone? Yeah, for sure. So thankfully, I haven't personally had to do this yet. Great relationship with our uh, founder. I'm only five months in, so maybe this is coming, but uh, great relationship with our founder. I respect her so much, and there's a lot I can learn from her. So if she wants to dig in, you know, I'm really open to that because I just think she's brilliant, and there's a lot there. And so part of it is also the way that you have to show up in these conversations is you can't eliminate the fact that sales process or sales improvement is also probably part of the story, right? Is if you walk into the conversation with the founder CEO and say, you know, there's five inputs to sales performance, but we can't include sales performance as one of them, (laughs) you know, like sales tactics or sales quality, like that is going to set you up for failure because could you get better at improving your objection handling? Could you get better at, you know, your prospecting efforts? Could you get better at X, Y, Z? Of course you could, right? And so the reality is, you know, what you need to be able to to articulate is how much, let's say I make massive improvement on objection handling. What do I think that's going to mean for my win rate? Right. Okay. So I think I might move our win rate from 30% to 35%. And that will result in X amount in bookings. That's not enough to solve our gap. Right. So it's an incomplete answer. Right. And so in that story, I'm going to go do that because that's low hanging fruit. That's something I can control. That's something I could go impact immediately. Right. I'm going to go make that investment. But I just want to be clear. I think it's only going to solve a very small portion of the problem. And so we're going to go do that. And so now we need to go brainstorm on if we have, you know, a $30 million gap, and I think this is going to cover $2 million, how do we find the other 28? And that's the full picture. What I love that you've done here, Holly, is you've again turned the tables on the problem. It's not on product. It's not on the sales org. It's not on the market. It's on the problem. And you might have been able to say, okay, our win rate or our progression rate from stage three to four has dropped by 20%, right? Some of that is external, but here's what we're doing to control and get that back to where we want it to be. And now because you've taken care of your part of the ship, you have the right to ask other parts of your organization, product, et cetera, to go and control the other pieces to get that win rate to where it was before. And you're part of attacking the problem alongside everyone else. So I wish I heard this podcast earlier on. This was amazing. But unfortunately, it's not 50 minutes to President's Club. It's 30 minutes to President's Club. And so we have to wrap. So Holly, my final question for you is, what is one thing 
or one bad habit that all sales leaders should stop doing and throw in the trash tomorrow to make every revenue organization a little bit better? Okay, so there are several things inside of comp design and comp planning that I think are materially flawed. First, let's all just call a spade a spade. Nobody gets into sales because they're not interested in making amazing money. And you stay in sales because you've had some taste, right? Like you had the drug and you are like, I can do this. And you believe in yourself and you better in yourself. So you go big. And so now you need to work somewhere that believes that if they invest in the comp plan and they, and they make and create the right comp plan design that you can overproduce. And so the big flaws I see are making comp plans that are wildly complicated. So nobody has any idea how much they're ever going to make. There's like four variables on the plan and it's like, like really impossible to figure out how to win. And the second is you should build a comp plan that you're happy for your sales team to break. And so what I mean by that is if they exploit the comp plan, right, they, they do 300% of that, that, that's an incredible outcome for the company, right? Good for you, good for the company. And so build a design where you hope someone breaks it. That would be a major win. Boom. Holly, amazing show. Everyone hang on for a 60-second Mark and Mondo recap coming up soon. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. Obsessive checking of your inbox is a total waste of time and brain power. Instead, commit to checking your inbox and responding to email at set times throughout the day. I'm a fan of Boomerang's pause inbox function to keep myself from getting distracted by my inbox. Now, we documented our best templates and tools to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang, and you can get that for free at the link in the show notes. Here's my secret to being a sales superhuman. It's auto reminders for everything. If I expect any reply from a prospect, I press command H and superhuman pops it right back into my inbox if I don't get a reply in two days. That means if you handle an objection, if you suggest times for a meeting, or if you ask for cuts back on red lines, always create a two day reminder task and assume they will not reply. So if you wanna follow up on time every time, you can get a free month of superhuman by checking it out in the show notes. This actionable competitive tactic from Clue is the trap question. Steer discovery toward the winning zone. If we're competing with a podcast that has no newsletter or webinar series, we might ask a trap question like, how do you figure out if those podcast listeners are making their way to your mailing list? And when you're in a head-to-head, there's no better way to prepare for your next competitive battle than with our trap questions and battle card templates from our friends at Clue. The link's in the show notes. Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Woodpecker. When you're sending a sales email, you generally want to avoid putting punctuation in the subject line. If you've got an exclamation point, it makes it seem like you're shouting at them. Look at this amazing offer. And a question mark just smells salesy. So avoid punctuation. Now, if you want to steal my full sales cadence from my friends at Woodpecker, there's a link in the show notes for you to go get it and try it for free. Peace out. Alrighty, Mark, that's a wrap. What'd you think? Listen, I, I've competed a long time against Holly, like I said in the intro, and I, you know I'm super interested to see what people think about what she said around managing that CEO or founder relationship. I think that that's where the goal of this episode was, is as a sales leader, how do you make sure that you manage up as well as you're managing your reps? I think what was really cool is Holly talked about when things are going well, talk about what will happen when things don't go well. Mm. Talk about it when things are good. And also 
co-create the goals and explain to each other that there are different confidence levels of how we set a target. If you want to set these talk targets bonkers high, just know that's going to be a 25% confidence goal. So expect a miss. And this is how we will handle a miss if it happens. And so you almost create a double-edged sword so that when you're creating a goal with your CFO or with your, or with your CEO, you're telling them this is the chance of us having to communicate a miss to the board. Are you okay with that? And you're making them part of the problem. Yeah, I think when you are a sales leader that has shown that you have ability to hit the number, missing a number doesn't mean that you all of a sudden stink. It means that there's a new problem to attack. And if you and your executives or CEO or founder can attack the problem instead of each other, only good things are going to happen. But it's so simple to blame the person that's the head of the place that owns the number rather than looking at holistically what's going on to cause the problem. Totally agree. Alrighty, folks. Well, that's a wrap for this one. If you liked what you heard, go ahead and connect with Holly Proctor on LinkedIn. I'm sure she would appreciate it. And tell her you loved her appearance on 30MBC. Peace out. Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Super Cadence by Influ2, which helps cut through the noise of oversaturated prospecting channels. If you want to get your prospect's attention, you got to do stuff a robot would never do. One of my favorite plays is getting warm introductions to the accounts that I'm targeting via salespeople who work at that account. Salespeople help salespeople. Another approach could be using Super Cadence to run SDR ads to put a face to the name. Now, we worked with Influ2 to put together a special toolkit on ways to humanize your outreach, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. Obsessive checking of your inbox is a total waste of time and brain power. Instead, commit to checking your inbox and responding to email at set times throughout the day. I'm a fan of Boomerang's pause inbox function to keep myself from getting distracted by my inbox. Now, we documented our best templates and tools to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang, and you can get that for free at the link in the show notes.